Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking, 500 and change. Not sure exactly where we are. Uh, Well above 500. But this is a momentous day because I am announcing a change in the podcast. There have been many changes in the podcast. I've been doing this since 2012, uh, a decade. I think I started in November. So a few months short of... A decade of podcasting. I think that qualifies me as an OG podcaster. Back so long ago that when I was trying to think of a name for my podcast, I thought I could call it WTF. That would be clever, wouldn't it? And then someone showed me how to use a podcast app and I put in WTF and I saw that a guy named Mark Marin, whom I had never heard of, already had a podcast by that name. Turns out Mark Marin and WTF is one of the biggest podcasts in the world. If you haven't listened to it, he got, he's the guy who got Barack Obama to come to his garage. Uh, it's a good podcast. Um, but anyway, I've got my little podcast. And when Sex at Dawn first came out in 2010... Um, I went and uh, one of the first talks I gave as a fully-fledged author with a New York Times bestseller was uh, a friendly debate with a Christian scholar at Johns Hopkins University. And um, a guy came to that debate, a journalist from New Zealand, um, who I think he had interviewed me over the phone Yeah, just after the book came out for a a publication in New Zealand. His name was Hamish McKenzie, young guy, very smart, very charming, very friendly. I went out for drinks with him and some friends of his. I remember it was like an old mill house. I remember lots of brick and uh, a restored, funky, industrial kind of space somewhere in Baltimore. Uh, anyway, we uh, had a good time. I really liked him. I think I might have had lunch with him the next day, just with him. But in any case, we kept in touch over the years. And Hamish founded a company with um, a couple other guys called Substack. That uh, when he first founded it, he told me about it. And I was like, wow, that sounds cool. Blogging site, you know, where people can pay and read your blog and, you know, sort of clean interface, nice platform. Um, and they take uh, 10% off the top. It's all very kind of transparent. And uh, and then as time went on, uh, I started to see more and more journalists leaving the world of conventional journalism, the New York Times, the Atlantic, uh, Rolling Stone, various places, and moving to Substack. These are like people with large followings, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Um, Andrew Sullivan, who I've been reading for years and years. 
people like that, uh, Robert Wright, uh, people I really admire whose work I, I've been following for most of my adult life, they, they started setting up on Substack. And every once in a while, Hamish would reach out and say, hey, Chris, you should come on Substack. And I thought, yeah, uh, but I'm busy with my podcast. I'm, I'm busy working on the next book or at least thinking about working on the next book. And uh, having a blog just didn't seem to make sense. I'm posting stuff on Instagram. I'm posting my half-ass, half-baked thoughts on Twitter. The last thing I need is another social media habit. Um, Anyway, a, a couple of months ago, Hamish reached out again and he said, listen, I don't want, I'm not bothering, I don't want to bother you, you know, <laughs> I know I've, I've reached out over the years, but uh, we're moving into podcasting and I'd love to talk to you about the possibility of you bringing the podcast to Substack. So uh, we did, Anya and I talked to a guy named Cheyenne who works at Substack and he sort of explained all the ins and outs and we've been negotiating and they Gave me some money to uh, make the transition as painless as possible, and uh, basically, it's a it's a it's like an advance on a book where they put some money up front and they make it back, depending on how many people sign up. Uh, they take their cut, and then after a year, uh, then that's it. I'm on my own. I can leave. I can do whatever I want. So it's nothing like a Rogan deal. Uh, it's it's no hundreds of millions of anything, uh, but it's uh, it's an interesting opportunity because honestly, I've gotten really frustrated and tired of all the finances of trying to monetize a podcast. Over the years, I've done everything from fucking selling underwear to wine of the month club to, you know, mattresses, well, and you know, sex toys. I'm fine with the sex toys because those are high quality, uh, the Lilo stuff, those are good products. If you're going to use a sex toy, that's not the place to be cheap, right? Um, OMG Yes has been fantastic. That's a really good product. So when I first got into the advertising, I was kind of somebody... I don't remember who it was, but somebody was like, hey, I can get you advertising and you don't have to do anything. And, you know, I'll just take a cut. And I was like, sure, go for it. But then I'm like, what the fuck? I'm reading Wine of the Month Club. I don't even like this wine, you know. And and then I said, OK, I'm not going to do advertising anymore. So then I didn't do any ads for years. And then I thought, OK, well, what about. Uh, I guess it was the folks at Mudwater reached out and they're like, hey, we listen to your podcast. We'd love to advertise. And I was like, okay, well, and they sort of ran the numbers by me. And I was like, fuck, there's, you know, with this size of the audience I have, I could actually make some serious money doing that. And then I don't have to ask people for contributions. Anyway, it just, you don't need to hear all my, my uh, discomforts around this stuff. But obviously, money is a problematic thing for me because we all need it uh, up to a certain point. It does make life better. Uh, You know, if you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat and where you're going to stay and what's going to happen to you when you get old or if you get sick or whatever, which in America is something that people need to think about. Uh, I'm sitting in Spain right now on the island of Gran Canaria where people don't really need to worry about that as much. The the state takes care of you when you get old. 
Uh, not as well as it does in Holland or Sweden or Finland, but uh, it definitely is a different kind of system here. Um, but yeah, in the U.S., you're on your own. So Substack is very clean, very simple. Here's how it's going to go down. The podcast, the sort of normal weekly podcast will remain free. Everything will continue going to your podcast app as it has before. You don't need to do anything. Everything's the same. If you go to Substack and you sign up, give them your email, then you'll receive an email from me when a new episode goes up. Uh, the episode will be embedded in the email and things like music that I want to feature. I'll be featuring that using a YouTube video. Um, so that's copyright. You know, everything's uh, easy and clear with that. So there will be if I talk about a song or something that I want to share with you, that'll be embedded in the email. Um, if you just continue doing nothing and just listen to the podcast in the app, then you'll just hear that. You won't get the email with the description or whatever little thing I've written, and you won't see the the video and get the music. So that sort of musical interlude will no longer be part of the podcast. That'll be something added to the email that goes out. And then if you sign up, and uh, there's only one tier, so it's not like um, Patreon where there's, you know, if you sign up for this amount, you get this. If you sign up for that amount, you get that. There's just one tier. It's 5 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. So if you pay up front, it's like 4 17 or something a month. So you're looking at a buck a week, okay? That's it. If you want to give more, if you're rich and happy and feeling generous and you want to throw down more than that, that's totally fine. There's a thing, it's called a founding member, where you can click on that and put in any amount you want. Um, and I see people are doing that, which is just so fucking awesome. So thank you for that. Um, but those are the the basic things. You don't get... You don't get more if you pay more. You just, so there's don't do anything. You'll get the four weekly podcasts. There's sign up for free. You'll get the podcast as well as uh, the email that goes with each posting. And, uh, you know, occasionally uh, some writing or some uh, stuff that I, I was doing on Instagram, like photographs or videos or whatever from traveling and stuff from the van and all that. And then if you pay, if you're a paying subscriber, five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year or more, then you get other stuff. Now, let's talk about what the other stuff is. First of all, uh, there's a lot of demand. There's been a lot of demand over the year. People want me to bring back Tomas, keep doing the Tomas. Now, I've talked about that. Of course, there's a psychological uh, bit of a stress related to that because it just feels so fucking egotistical just talking about myself or something for an hour. But anyway, I'm bringing back Thomas. And uh, I've got I've been sitting on this list of Toma uh, possibilities. For those of you who are new, Toma is talking out my ass and it's just me telling stories from my life, stuff that happened 
um, experiences I've had. I've talked about the Jaguar, the um, Jaguar Temple in Guatemala, where I got stung by the scorpion while I was tripping. I've told that story all over the place. I've already told the story about going to prison in Alaska. Um, I haven't told the story yet about like what it was like to be on that porn set, uh, for which I eventually won the AVN award. Um, or when I worked at the biggest porn company in the world in Barcelona years ago. And I've got a list of like 20 or 25 different things. So I'm going to be doing uh, more Tomas. Uh, I aim to bring them back once a month. and uh, But as you know, uh, I'm not real. I'm not a real stickler for details, but that's the idea. So figure 10 a year of those. Then I'm going to do uh, Bromas which is a bonus ranting out my ass. So a lot of the regular episodes now are just Romas, just me talking about whatever's happening, whatever I'm thinking about. So I will do those as I always have, but I'll do a bonus one occasionally, one or two of those a month. I'll do a periodic AMA. So on the website where subscribers, there was a subscriber forum where people could ask questions, ask for advice, um, just throw up an idea that they want me to talk about. Uh, that's going to be happening on Substack now. So that'll be happening as well. AMAs, you can uh, just throw me a, an email with a question, something you want to hear me noodle around on, and I'll do that. The what makes this book great thing, I've already done a few of those about short stories. Um, the liar, the ones who walk away from Omelas, cat person. I did one about um, the essay by Paul Graham called What You Can't Say. So I'm going to continue doing those. Again, more or less one or two a month, depending on what I'm reading, how excited I am by it. Those also will be for paying subscribers. Upcoming ones um, will feature Carl Jung. I just read his autobiography again. I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, Walt Whitman, Song of Myself, one of the great, weirdo poets ever. Uh, Milan Kundera, I'm going to reread uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, talk about that. A short story by Ernest Hemingway, I've been looking back at some of that stuff. So that's included for paying subscribers. And the stuff that I've been doing on Instagram, like photos from the road and, you know, little travel essays or videos and stuff, I'm bringing that to Substack. Basically, a lot of what's going on is I want to pull away from social media that owns all the content, that fucks around with algorithms, fucking Mark Zuckerberg, fuck that guy, right? And all those guys, all those guys with the weird haircuts and the dead eyes and the algorithms and the fucking data mining management bullshit, fuck that. Substack, it's just me and you. They take a cut off the top for providing the platform, no algorithms, no ads, no mental manipulation, just me and you. So that's why I love it. That's what I'm doing. Today's the first episode. Thank you for being here. If you want to join me there, it's chrisryan.substack.com. Now, what about people who already subscribe on Patreon or directly through my website? First of all, we've canceled all the payments, so you should not be charged anything by Patreon or um, the direct system that we had set up on my website. 
If you want to go in and cancel, you can, but it shouldn't be necessary. If for some reason you do get charged, make sure you let me know and we'll refund that. Additionally, everyone who is subscribed or has been subscribed on Patreon or through my website automatically is subscribed for a free month as a paid subscriber on Substack. So you'll be getting everything, um, including an email reminding you that, hey, you're on this free thing for a month, this free one-month trial thing, and um, you know that's going to end uh, two weeks from now and then a week from now and then you know six hours from now or whatever. Um, so you'll be getting some of that stuff. But if you subscribed, you'll be getting, you're automatically um, considered a paid subscriber for the first month. And the last thing I want to mention is if you want, if it's really important to you, if you're a longtime listener and um, you don't have the cash to subscribe, uh, just get in touch with me and we'll work something out because they did give me a certain number of comps that I can use for people who, um, you know, can't, han- can't handle the financial burden at the moment. And uh, that's totally cool. I still want you around. I'm doing this shit anyway, whether you pay for it or not. So, all right, that handles, I think that settles all the money stuff. Uh, so please subscribe. Even if you just subscribe for free, we'll stay in touch and um, I'll know you're out there. That's the other thing about Substack that's cool. It's like, When you just do a normal podcast, you don't really know who's out there. You don't know who's listening. You just know it goes out and your uh, hosting service gives you some numbers and says, oh, there were 47 downloads in Mongolia last month. But I don't know who the fuck is in Mongolia. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know who you are. So with Substack, at least I've got your email and you've got my email. Um, You can write to me directly at Substack um, and I will get it. Let's see, what is my email at Substack? I think it's chrisryan at substack.com. So that's it. I hope this works. If you're hearing this, it means it worked. So there's that. This episode is with my best buddy. This is a guy I've known since I was 15 years old. His name's Mike Lang. He's been on the podcast before. Mike is a very humble dude. He is not going to tell you he's an expert on anything other than maybe electrical engineering, which he studied at Cornell uh, and uh, has worked. I mean, he's worked more as a like a business guy, I guess. I mean, his engineering got him into the business, but then he quickly became the boss. So he's he's a boss. Um, But he is one of the smartest, most. I don't know, mentally fastidious maybe is a good word. He's a very careful, thorough thinker. Um, And he is also someone who knows a lot about Russia and Ukraine. Both his parents uh, were born in Ukraine. His father, I believe, was born in a town that was part of Poland when he was born there, but then later the border moved Um, Because of the Second World War, uh, things kind of got shuffled around and now the town is in Ukraine. Or maybe it's the opposite. I don't know. But um, his mother's from eastern Ukraine. His father's from western Ukraine. Mike grew up speaking Russian um, because his parents decided that's the language they would speak in the house. Um, But that was in Connecticut. So he speaks English 
like you and me, but he also speaks Russian like a Russian you and me. And uh, he has read a lot and talked a lot. His, um, we talk in this conversation about a trip he took back in the 80s, or maybe it was the 90s before, um, no, it was the 80s for sure, because it was before uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, um, uh, when it was still a communist country and you had to like go behind the so-called Iron Curtain um, and it was very difficult and very controlled. And, uh, yeah. So Mike has a long, um, longstanding interest in that part of the world and a great deal of knowledge. And I wanted to have him on, uh, just because I don't have a great deal of knowledge and it's a big story, uh, what's happening right now. And it's very different to listen to a translation of what, uh, Vladimir Putin is saying, uh, versus listening to him say it in Russian, and um, and uh, to be to have access to to those things directly um, is interesting, and the perspective of okay, what's the Western media saying? What are they? What's their angle? What's their bias? What's going on in the Russian media? Um, I don't want to get too specific because um, people haven't given me permission to, but. People who are very close to Mike uh, work quite closely with um, some of the leading dissidents, uh, including people that uh, you've probably heard of, um, anti-Putin power figures. Um, So Mike's got access to a lot of information, not only publicly available, but uh, coming through various back channels. And uh, he's a very, very smart guy. So This conversation is with my boy, Mike Lang, about Russia, about Ukraine, about Putin, about what's going on there. We recorded it, uh, I think, on the 3rd of April. So, uh, you know, any sort of very recent uh, happenings um, happened after we talked about this. So, all right, I guess that's it. I guess now I'm not going to play a song. I don't even know what song I will include. Um, You know what? I might include, there's a beautiful piece of music I've played on the podcast before. It's by the Paul Winter Consort. And um, it's Casilda's absolute favorite piece of music. Um, It's very emotional for me every time I hear it because... It's the one piece of music that no matter what she was doing, no matter where she was, if this song came up uh, on shuffle, she would stop what she was doing and dance. It's one of those pieces of music. It's called Down in Belgorod. Um, And I think I'll play that because Belgorod is in the news. It's right on the border, um, on the Russian side of the border with Ukraine. And so uh, there's probably not a lot of dancing going on in Belgorod right now. But even in the midst of these sorts of horrible, difficult moments, it's important to remember that uh, dancing exists. So if you sign up for the podcast um, and check the posts, you'll see the video of uh, Paul Winter Consort playing down in Belgorod. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for your support. And a special thank you to 
the hundreds of people who have already signed up on Substack, sending out a lot of love to all of you. Talk to you soon. All right. I'm here with my buddy, Mike Lang, who taught me to drink beer. Oh, my God. How many years ago was that? Uh, what were we, six years old, was it? <laughs> <laughs> I blame all the extra weight on you, dude, because it's all beer belly. I didn't teach you to drink beer. I taught you to like drinking beer. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I had had you some hated before. It. I, I yeah. didn't see the point. It's just like this tastes terrible. Why do you yeah. people do this? And as you, you had this brief window in your life and my life as the corrupting influence. It's such a weird thing. It's very you. ironic and very like, funny because like the, the whole course. rest of our lives has been the opposite, right? <laughs> exactly. It's like the lines <laughs> crossed for a few months in 1979 or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And uh, you, well, you taught me to drive during that time. But I taught you to drive properly, as I recall. That's, I mean, you haven't wrecked any cars, have you? I that's have. true. It's true. Um, but yeah, we, we taught each other some essential life skills there. And uh, one of the ones you taught me was uh, several were actually kind of corrupting. We won't go into details about yeah. all of them. Um, in, in, in deference to the fact that your life has sort of gone more toward good behavior. <laughs> You're a father and a respected member of the community. <laughs> that's, but anyway, that's right. um, yeah, Mike Lang. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here, Mike, aside from the fact that it's just always great to check in and, and get some time to hang out, is uh, that a few, what is it now, a month and a half ago when Putin was uh, amassing forces on the border and threatening to go into Ukraine, I released one of my ill-considered off the top of my head hot take episodes and said, yeah, I, I don't really think it's going to be a big deal. I think what he's going to do is just go in and take uh, the eastern uh, areas there, which are culturally Russian in, in some sense. A lot of the people there speak Russian, consider themselves to be Russians. And, um, you know, he's probably going to do that. He's going to he's already got Crimea. Is that how it's pronounced? Crimea. Um, Crimea. They're Crimea. all different kinds of pronunciations. Yeah. The, the it's, easy, it's easy in Russian, Krim. <laughs> so anyway, my, my point was like, it's not going to be a big war. It's not going to be a big deal. He's going to basically take what is already sort of de facto Russian territory. I was totally wrong about that. And um, before I was even proved wrong, I got a lot of blowback from from some listeners who I think were a lot of them were Eastern European and they were really pissed off and because a lot of what I was saying was like, look, the U.S. does this all the time. And I wasn't saying it's no big deal what Putin's doing, but I was saying or what he's threatening to do. But I was saying the U.S. is in no position to get all, uh, you know, morally judgmental about this because, you know, it's the same thing with accusing the Russians of subverting our elections. Like we subvert our elections all the time. Like, you know, I True. think the, I just read an article, 72 different countries the U.S. has gone in 
and subverted the elections uh, covertly. You know, it's what the CIA yep. does. It goes back to the fall of, you know, the, the elected government in Iran in the 50s and Guatemala in the 50s and, you know, Indonesia on and on. Anyway, so I was accused of whataboutism and people pointed out quite correctly that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So I thought, let's have you on and let you get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Because, Thank you, uh, you know, I know you're you're a very humble guy and you don't want to present yourself as any kind of an expert, but you do speak Russian fluently. Uh, in do you speak Ukrainian or was that your grandmother spoke Ukrainian? My, my mom, my mom was your fluent mom. in both, but she taught us uh, Russian. And so and my dad was uh, Polish. So my the, the languages are are similar, but they're dif- distinct. And right. and my Polish is you know weak but okay. My Russian is fluent, and my Ukrainian is kind of nothing. Um, and what does that I can, mean? I can figure stuff out, right? Well, that's what I was going to say. How different is Ukrainian from Russian? Is it like Portuguese to Spanish, or is it that? Well, I may I may distance? get into hot water just in answering this question, but it is a it's a distinct uh, language. I would say that it's. Um, uh, I'm, now, I'm I'm not a linguist, but I'm interested in languages, right? So the way I would describe it is that in terms of structure, it's a little closer to Russian. And in terms of vocabulary, it's a little closer to Polish. A lot of people actually feel or think that it's slightly closer to Polish as a language than, uh, than Russian. Hmm. So I'd say it's closer together than Spanish and Portuguese, it'd be something between the three of them, right? It's kind of a continuum, right? As you go east to west, I would say it's closer to the phenomenon you see if, you know, if you have any Scandinavian friends, the way Danes and Swedes and Norwegians can kind of figure out what they're saying to each other. It's a little bit closer, more analogous, uh, I would say, to, to that. So therefore, even though I don't speak Ukrainian, I can figure a lot of stuff out because it's not too far away from Russian or Polish. Right. So I can I can extract you, you both know, sides. Is it interpolate? Is that the right word? I don't know. Yeah. But I can I can figure it out. Right. 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 And what about uh, written? Does it use the Cyrillic alphabet? It uses or the Cyrillic alphabet about you know ninety eight percent the same as the Russian alphabet, but the various uh, Slavic countries that use the Cyrillic alphabet all have two or three letters that are different to account for the differences in their their own pronunciation. So Serbs, for example, have a couple letters that are different, but the rest is the same, you know, Mm. Uh, same Bulgarians, uh, same thing. And so the same with the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians, for example, have an I that's like our I, you know, with a dot on top, right? Like a Latin I. And then they have another letter that's like the Russian I, which is like a backwards N. So they have Mm. both, Mm. but it's basically the same uh, alphabet. Right. And review for us, if you would, your family connection. Your father's from, or your mother's from you. Yeah. So I'll, I'll actually, I'll just take a take a step back from that and say, you know, I'm not a historian. What is what is it? A uh, the doctor on Star Trek. So I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, right? So I'm I'm Jim. not a historian. Yeah. I'm an I'm an engineer by by training and and. Um, 
you know, but like yourself and like a lot of people, there's certain areas, certain subjects that interest me, you know. So if we were to do a podcast on music, I think it'd be a pretty interesting podcast because I have a lot of musical background. You have tremendous amount of musical knowledge, you know. If we were to talk about some other subject, I'd be completely inept. In this case, I know a little bit about the area because of my parents, so it's an area of of discussion that I can I can speak to you know um, to a certain degree. So uh, as we'll get into that area, sort of Eastern Poland and Ukraine, uh, is a mishmash of different peoples over the course of history. Remember, in a recent exchange, uh, um, I, you kind of prodded me. I ended up calling it a tide pool. It's like a tide mm. pool of different people, uh, and so. There were German sort of settlers through and some stay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll dive into that because I think that's an important concept in this, in this discussion. Uh, but, uh, so my, my dad is, it was mostly Polish, but his paternal roots, uh, were slightly German as well from German colonists who were invited into an area called Galicia, which today spans southeastern Poland and western Ukraine, hmm. uh, when it belonged relation, to Austria-Hungary. Any relation to the Spanish Galicia? Not at all. It's a complete... Oh, totally uh, yeah. different. Okay. It, it's even, so, it's you know, in Ukraine it's Halicina, so it doesn't even sound the uh, same, but it's it translates to the same spelling in English coincidentally. So, you know... He's Polish and German. That's half of me. And then my mom and, and most people now know a little bit more about Ukraine and know that there's kind of a Western Ukraine that tends to be more Ukrainian speaking and an Eastern Ukraine that's more Russian speaking. So her mom came from the East or the center, you know, her dad came from the West. So I grew up with knowledge of both, if, both kind of frames of reference, if you will. Right. So I have a, uh, I have several frames of reference and therefore, you know, as, as you, you know, you mentioned earlier, you, you said some things on your podcast, it listed some emotional responses and, and I'm, you know, I, I, I don't know what the details of it, of it were, but this is clearly a very emotional subject for a lot of people, right? And so when you speak to Ukrainians right. or people of Ukrainian background, rightfully so, they have very strong reactions and strong opinions one way or another. Right. So Even I'm without a little bit the war. Of, right. So I'm a little bit afraid that no matter what I say today, you know, people aren't going to be happy because I find myself, I'm kind of neutral, <laughs> because of as my background that I just described to you, right? So my, right. Uh, I you know the only box that isn't ticked in there is the Jewish component because that's another ethnicity that has a long, over one thousand year history in that uh, in in that region. So I did do my DNA, uh, you know, whatever that that company that does the DNA testing, and I, I you know I, I really expected to be. Uh, I don't know, a quarter Jewish or an eighth Jewish or something. And it turns out that I'm, I'm only something like half a percent or something like that. So some, somebody was naughty 10 or 11 generations ago. And yeah, I've got more Neanderthal yeah. than that. <laughs> so anyway, I, my background is in that area. And therefore, and now someone's going to say, lot. Chris Ryan, just to uh, compare Jews to right. Neanderthals. You racist, <laughs> anti-Semite. Yes. It's not true. I love Neanderthals. Um, 
<laughs> See how easy it is to get in trouble with this thing? <laughs> um, so just to so, stress, those are my only qualifications, right, that's for this it. conversation. Well, and also, uh, you know, your parents aren't only from there, but they retained a lot of that kind of cultural um, influence in your home when you were growing up in Connecticut. You know, your mother was uh, worried that the, the Russians were going to invade at any moment and sending you to school with a brown paper bag with Russian dumplings and, you know, all <laughs> kinds of Ukrainian pastries and God knows what. I no, mean, it's true. I, I did grow you're up You're a lot more Russian than I am Irish is what I'm trying to say, you know, or well, Ukrainian. I, I would. I, yeah, exactly. I would stress Ukrainian as opposed to Russian. So I grew right. up, yes, you're right. I grew up and you tasted uh, things like borscht, you know, and, and uh, pierogies. And, yeah, I remember. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I learned how to do those those Ukrainian Easter eggs, you know. I can teach mm. you how to do them sometime, Chris. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I definitely grew up culturally uh, immersed in that stuff. Yes. Yeah. And then how old were you? You went to the Soviet Union, I remember. Was that when yep. you finished your undergrad? Was that you t You went with your mom? I finished grad. Yeah. So it was summer of 85. And uh, so it was the, the, the last five, six years of the Soviet Union. And yeah. uh, it was a, it was a dream of mine that I wanted to take uh, my mom and uh, go there. And there was, um, at the time there was a, there was a guy out of Cambridge, Massachusetts who organized a camping trip. You would rent, he would rent, uh, five or six Volkswagen buses and some tents and would go in through the North, through Finland, you know, and then to what was then called Leningrad and then go down Moscow and so on, and then come out through the Ukrainian SSR, right? Because the Ukraine was one of the 15, Soviet socialist republics, and then you'd pop out through into communist Poland, and then into East Germany, West Germany, and back. I think it was Brussels was where where the you know sort of starting point was. Fantastic trip. Uh, my brother joined us as well, and 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 uh, it would you know my mother never dreamed that she would ever set foot there again, and it was it was a fascinating trip. But yeah, so I was in my early twenties, and a lot of people listening to this have no idea what that was like because they were born uh you know they don't remember soviet union they don't remember the iron curtain they don't remember how there were two worlds divided and a trip like that is going behind the wall you know i mean well, let me let me it, let me just very... describe something quickly crossing from finland into the soviet union and this is late soviet union when they'd already gotten soft if you will um you after you cross a, a 50 meter or so wide minefield you look to the left and to the right and it's a minefield just just dirt you know yeah. uh then you you pull over and you spend, we spent six hours as each bus was taken apart. By apart, I mean opening up the panels of the doors to look behind the panels of the doors, right? Driven over a, I can't remember what those things are called, where a guy can get in underneath and poke mm -hmm. around underneath the vehicle. Each tent was removed and every pole of the tent was looked through, you know? And what and what that do you takes think a they while. were afraid you were bringing in? 
there was a lot of stuff that was not allowed. So, you know, some people brought in um, some Bibles, for example. Remember, they were militant right. atheists, right? And they well, that's both, what I was going to say. It, it's like it's more information. It's yes. not like they were looking for heroin or no, blue jeans no, just or something. stuff that was politically illegal. Yeah. So, so it, the mind clean, clean us. Yeah. They're yeah. trying to make us uh, clean before we get in, right. you know? Because you're, you're by definition, subversive, unclean. Decadent Westerners. Yeah. Sound familiar? Yeah. Well, well that's what I wanted to, <laughs> to move toward in the sense that, you know, that kind of language is, is being used now. And uh, you and I talked about this recently and, and you pointed to some sort of perennial themes in Russian politics and Russian relations with uh, Europe and the West in general. Um, no doubt. I mean, it, there's there's stuff that spans hundreds of years that didn't change from czarist times to Soviet times to post-Soviet times. And, you know, uh, kind of a general, on the one hand, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, long, it's a long discussion, but it begins with the idea that um, all the way back to the the Middle Ages, the middle of the Middle Ages, if we count the Middle Ages as being roughly 500 to 1500, right? So uh, all the way back to the Middle Ages began kind of an identity crisis for what the people today that are called Russians, where uh, from 1240 to 1480, they were under the, the Tartar yoke, you know, so the, the Genghis Khan and, and his descendants. And you know, a lot of a lot of interbreeding happens during a quarter of a millennium, and a lot of cultural mixing happens during that time. And so, you know, Russians have, you know, as far back as as we know, have always had a very authoritarian vertical structure, and kind mm. of a collective mindset uh, in a lot of ways. And and it sort of uh, it distinguishes Asiatic. itself. Yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to 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 make generalizations, but there's a lot more similarities in terms of how their politics political structures are to uh, today's China than than there mm -hmm. are to Western Europe. At the same right. time, they're geographically in Europe. There's doing they've been do they did a lot of mixing with the West as well, and so you have giant figures in Russian history, beginning with Peter the Great, their czar, uh, who was a hundred percent in the uh, in the one hundred and eighty degrees in the other direction and said, "No, we're part of Europe, okay? So all of you guys that 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 view yourselves as somehow different than Europe and look down on Europe uh, as being uh, evil in some way, uh, you know, I'm gonna stick you in prison or you know whatever. And he created a new capital out of nothing, called it St. Petersburg uh, in the north, so that they would have a seaport. To the west, and, and what, you know, what Russian, years are we talking about here? Seventeen hundreds, and and they, uh, uh, you know, men in Russia at that time had full beards and didn't cut their hair, and he made them all by law cut their beards off and and cut their hair short, and so he forced uh, again authoritarian. It's kind of ironic, uh, forced the Western thinking and, and West connecting mm. with the West. And we're going to be Western. We're Western. We're part of Europe, uh, on them. So Russian history to me is 
replete with with upheavals first one way then the other way then back the first way then the other way of we embrace europe we hate europe you know we embrace it we hate it we're part of it we 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 want nothing to do with it and you know there's so many examples of you know we we think about for for those who believe that russia isn't part of europe or hasn't contributed you know think about things like Mendeleev and and uh, uh, the the periodic table, you know, or or Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninov and Shostakovich, you know, the 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 massive uh, contributions from the uh, musical front. Do I need to go into things like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy? You know, I mean, just giants of contribution to the Western canon of culture. On the one hand, and yet on the other hand, right. they view the West as right. evil. <laughs> and it's because they're split, you, they're divided. Well, how do you square that, that you know, um, totally legitimate point about the incredible accomplishments of Russian science and arts um, with what you're saying about this sort of top-down, hierarchical, no free thinking, don't question authority uh, approach? Because... You know, here in the West, we credit that free thinking with all the innovation, right? It's like if the Wright brothers had listened to everyone, they wouldn't have tried to make an airplane, right? And, you know, if Darwin had followed the teachings of the church, he wouldn't have dared to write Origin of Species. Like, you know, we that's our narrative, that it's the free thinking and the challenging of authority that leads to innovation and scientific advancement and artistic advancement. So, you know what I mean? Where's I don't know enough yeah. about Chinese art to say if there is Neither if there I. are Chinese equivalents to Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Rachmaninoff or you know yes. Chekhov. I don't know. Maybe there are, but it sort of seems like you know. Even to take a very contemporary example, the the narrative that's coming out of Western media is that the reason the Russians are having so much trouble is that their officer corps is shot if they think for themselves. They're, they're, you know, taught never to do anything without getting the order and nothing but the order, no matter how ridiculous it looks on the ground. And the Western mindset is, no, you adapt, you change, you take initiative. It's okay. And that's why the Ukrainians are kicking ass. That may just be a self-serving narrative framing um yeah i, I read know. i read that i'll come back to your i'll come back to your main point i read a couple of articles on what you're talking about there i, I would sort of take them with a grain of salt only because you know it is a good military there and 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 the other reason being that i'm i'm very skeptical about what we are being fed in our own press as being extremely biased, extremely yeah. almost fact-free sometimes. You know, it's just, it's utter propaganda about the bravery of the Ukrainians and the ineptitude of the Russians. So I'd, I, I'd caution people when they read that stuff. But yeah, it's about how the the Western militaries or the American military tends to divest or, 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 or delegate decision-making further down the chain. And right. that's why we're killing all these generals. I don't, it sounds a little simplistic uh, and, and propagandistic yeah. to me, to me, frankly. But I want to come back to answer your, your larger question. I can't come up with a, a, 
a sophisticated answer, so I'm going to give the answer in, a, in as simply as I understand it, which is that when you have an authoritarian system, and if the person at the top, the czar or the czaress, like Catherine was another great westernizer, uh, mandates that you're going to you are going to be creative and you're going to uh, engage with the West than you do during those years and you take advantage of it and they have a lot of talent and a lot of intelligence and and they thrive in it and when you have a leader who is and those are called the westernizers right this was the parlance that used to be used back when we were at university and back when we had miss lasky's class in junior year in high school that you never paid attention in and and uh, we won't go into why, unless you want to. And because yeah, um, of the beer, and then the other school of thought, <laughs> right? That's why. <laughs> um, and and the other and the other side it was called Slavophiles, which means mm. we, you know we love Slavs. We're, we're Slavs were the best, right? As opposed to Westernizers. When you had someone with a more inward bearing at the top of that authoritarian chain and saying you will not engage with the West, the West is nothing but evil, then you're muzzled. And you know you and I are kind of old enough to now have seen one of each. A little mm-hmm. bit, you know, yeah. uh, at least on at least on paper. Although, let me just go on a quick tangent here and challenge the notion that Putin Putin is behaving now, okay, like I'm a Slavophile, or the the the, the term now is called Eurasianism, Eurasian, right? We're somehow different, and we're better, and we're purer than the West. Uh, sorry. <laughs> you know, in other words, there's this there's this little inconvenient thing called facts on the ground. So you've got him trying to paint, uh, you know, I'm for conservative culture. I'm for traditionalism. I'm trying to get rid of gay parades. Right. We've heard we've been reading about this, this kind of stuff. And yet look at look at Russia today. So he's trying to, I don't know, hold his country up as some kind of a standard. So. I'm going to say these things in a completely apolitical way. These are just facts that you can draw your own conclusions from. Highest abortion rate in the world. Near highest, I'm not sure the exact number, divorce rate in the world. And 4% of people go to church on Sunday. Four. And Yes. And you're going to tell me about you're the moral guy. Right. Right? And so alcoholism. It, on the ground the there, it's a... Sorry? alcoholism and alcohol related death absolutely off the charts yeah it, it's a dysfunctional country yeah. <laughs> you know with nukes so uh you know not that anybody really was seriously buying that this is this 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 invasion of ukraine is is about spreading uh eurasianism and 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 uh, high morality but what a joke sorry to go on that tangent but i think that needs to be said because yeah. there are, and, and I'll tell you why I think it needs to be said, because there are a, a lot of people, an alarming number of people in America, for example, who are, uh, you know, traditionalists, who are a little bit seduced by this, you know, and, and are, and are kind of siding with Putin. And there is an yeah. attraction, there is a seduction to want to side with it. But when you're siding with it, you're siding with a thug. You're siding with an authoritarian, a dictator. 
you know and the problem with dictatorships and author- authoritarian governments as opposed to siding with it in a democracy is that in a democracy you can have that opinion you can have another opinion you can have a third opinion or a fourth opinion nobody gives a damn right but in an authoritarian in a dictatorship if you if you waver off of whatever the orthodoxy with a small o of the day is you're either arrested or you're muzzled or you're exiled or you're sent to the gulag, right? So be careful for what you're getting seduced by. There, I'm off of that particular soapbox. You know, one of my favorite books of all time, you've heard me talk about this often, is The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And you just reminded me of it when you were talking about how, you know, how you can have differing opinions in the West and nobody gives a shit. And if you have differing opinions um, in an authoritarian country, people really do give a shit. You're in trouble. Um, But there's also the side of that, which is that your opinion matters. Politics matters. Philosophy matters. History matters. And, you know, that's the heaviness. That's the unbearable part. And the West is the lightness of you can say whatever you want. Nobody gives a shit. Doesn't matter. Your thoughts don't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. What's the point? Nothing, nothing is, matters. Nothing matters. That's the lightness, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, when I hear you say something like that, or, you know, here I'm in Istanbul right now, uh, which is sort of, you know, seesawing back and forth between an authoritarian, I mean, there are tens of thousands of journalists who've been thrown in jail here. People are murdered here, um, you know, and they're having the peace talks here. It's no, a no, very you're central wrong. point. They, they were reacting to a coup d'etat. They were trying to take him yeah. over. You yeah. don't understand. <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting framing of things. But, you know, I, you could get in trouble for saying what I just said here. A lot of trouble. Right. Uh, luckily, exactly. I'll be gone by the time this is public. <laughs> Not that anyone gives a shit about my opinion. But, I mean, there there is a substantiveness to thinking when your thoughts and your conversation could land you in prison. You know? Um, it's weird. A real, Whereas a real, in the West... A realness. The thing that'll get you fired from your job is, you know, that you made a joke that could be considered sexist or racist or it's still an authoritarianism, but it's so different. It's, uh, anyway, I don't I don't want to get into it. Well, but you just opened up another another little door there, which is well off topic. But I'm going to go ahead and just dive in and say a sentence on it, which is that, unfortunately, I see the West now with with uh, wokeness going a little too far and us becoming there's a new there's a new orthodoxy right and and if you step outside of that orthodoxy uh i can't remember if it was with you that i was talking about recently about a professor who said yes it was with you i won't go into the details of it but he said something that is now considered wrong and he's been erased he's been airbrushed out of the photograph like the soviets used to do yeah, I talked about that on the podcast. The the psychiatrist okay, okay. and who yeah. said the woman was a beautiful freak of nature or a sculptor or whatever and yeah. Yeah, and he's been destroyed for saying that. He's not in prison, so we, but he's lost have, his career. Yeah, but he's finished, right? And we we need yeah. to guard ourselves against 
uh, an authoritarianism of the left, you know. <laughs> so just just yeah. a you know, it's a tangent, but I think it's an yeah. important point that there's some really uh, alarming signs uh, in recent uh, years in in uh, in the states. In any case, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because that kind of orthodoxy fuels a lot of the popularity of somebody like Putin or Trump in the West, right? Because, you know, some guy in Kansas is saying, oh, you know, all these hippies and, you know, they want me to use 15 different pronouns and, you know, they're – uh, everyone can go into every bathroom and now we need a strong person who knows common sense and that's where you get your fucking – thugs in office it's it's yeah i mean it's all to, to, come, uh, to come back to putin and, and to ukraine all i was trying to say is that you know putin is not the answer <laughs> right i mean he's he's just a he's just a thug who who's uh you know by the way i i i listened to um you, know, you had me read this this uh this article this morning which we should talk about it's a very interesting opinion piece but uh on, on what's going on there uh, but I, I listened to the full hour and a half interview uh, recently that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, mm. gave to the Russian press. And and by Russian press, I mean, it was, I think it was there were five essentially managing editors. So it was the it was the top guys uh, of of uh, um, the, the few remaining free voices in, in or, or were uh, in in Russia and. Uh, Two or three of them are still based in Russia, or and the other, the rest of them have already been sent into exile, essentially by mm. uh, by by Putin. For example, Medusa is one, and, and I think they operate out of Lithuania or Latvia, something like that. So they use the internet to get back into the country for as long as that's going to uh, continue. But anyway, this, so this this uh, I should say that after this interview happened, the ones that are still based in Russia were. were threatened harshly by the authorities if they published it so they didn't in fact one mm. of them ceased publication kind of as a silent protest you know mm. as a result great interview uh it's i don't think it's available in english i listened to you know he gave it in in russian he's a fluent russian speaker you know right. and uh just off the cuff you know just answering questions off the cuff for an hour and a half he's very tired and you can see he hasn't been sleeping much comes across awesome. I mean, he comes across so opposite to Vladimir Putin, right? You can't, it's just, he just comes across like a guy, you know? And yeah, uh, but and he's a professional actor, Mike. I mean, how much of that true. is legit? I mean, you, you being able to listen to him speak in his native language. What, yeah, I'm what listening to the sense? words. Was it like, this guy's to- legit or is this just a really well-trained guy playing a role? Uh, I buy it as legit, you know, because he's not a career politician. Right. He can't be accused of being a career politician. I think everybody, most everybody who's listening to this knows what his story is, but just in case people don't know, an immensely popular Ukrainian Jewish, by the way, uh, entertainer, comedian who had a, a popular show that was widely viewed in Russia, by the way, it's in Russian, uh, and, you know, made a movie and, and, and he made this movie called Servant of the People comedy, 
where he's a school teacher or something and, and uh, starts ranting about the government and someone says, you ought to do something about it. You ought to run. He runs and he wins and he becomes the president. And this is one of the, one of the most amazing stories of, you know, art imitating life or life imitating art or whatever, yeah. where then that actually happens. You know, right. you know, there's an election. He runs and he gets voted in with 73% of the vote, which, you know, a, an utter landslide and becomes the president. So I can't, you know, he's not a career politician. He is an actor, true. And he has a very polished production company, which is standing him in good stead right now. He's running circles around Putin in in the sort of the PR uh, war. Although he's not, because each one is just talking to their bubble, their echo chamber, yeah, right? Right. So uh, where I was going with all of this is that at the very end of the interview, he challenges the notion that what Putin is doing is part of some kind of larger strategy, right? Because there's a lot of talk about history and strategy and long term. And, and you know, he, he says it in kind of a, a he's ribbing Putin a little bit. He goes, you know, the thing about me is I'm still young. I'm not 70 years old. And he goes, for somebody who's, because Putin is just about to turn 70, for someone who's 70 years old, how many more years are there left? And so what he sees happening is more a thing of, he's just thinking a few years ahead and he's making some mistakes that are going to have a gigantic ripple effect for decades to come. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not the first one to say this, but I'll, 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 I'll say it because I really think it's, one of the most important and ironic points in all of this, no single person has done more to build a Ukrainian nation and to unite Ukrainians around being Ukrainian than the guy who wants to do the exact opposite, Vladimir Putin. Think about it. From 2014 until now, no single person has done more to make people feel distinct from being Russian, to dislike, to disliking Russians, to not wanting to speak Russian anymore. You know, because you're right, the eastern part, much of where he he has invaded now, uh, those people speak Russian. Many of them don't even know Ukrainian. I, but I, I do want to, uh, I'm kind of going all over the place here, but I want to say one important thing ethnically, right? Uh, the, the eastern part is still mostly ethnically Ukrainian. It's Russian speaking, but it's mostly ethnically Ukrainian. There are areas around Donetsk and Luhansk and Dnipro and so on that do have a fair amount of r ethnically Russian people there. And those are people who were brought in in Stalinist times for the most part, right? So in other words, mm -hmm. Stalin was known for moving huge masses of people uh, around that area was slated to get industrialized and it needed to get populated with, it, with, with uh, you know, working people. And mm. so a lot of uh, Russians were brought in and they stayed, you know, uh, but, but they, they constitute a minority, you know, so the, mm. uh, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think uh, Ukraine is something in the teens, ethnically Russian, you know, 14%, something, something like that. Right. Uh, so I, I, that, that, that's an important uh, point in all of this. Right. When when did Russia become Russia? Because it's it's a mm. it's a strange phenomenon to think of a country spanning uh, I don't know how many time zones in the you know what 1700s or something. I, I mean, how yeah. uh, 
It's just yeah, strange it, it, that, you know, the Pacific isn't a separate country, right? I mean, you know, there's a lot of us talking down in that area. Like, how is that not part of Korea or China? It doesn't even seem I mean, like it I, makes sense. I, I, we, it's a long answer, <laughs> but let's, let's try. So uh, let's start by talking about nations and states, okay? So in other words, tribes, let's call it tribes and states. So... Tribes have been around forever. States have been around a lot, lot more recently, right? So states go back to the Middle Ages, the, the notions of, of what we think of as a, as a state. And even the notion of a state is not something like on this Tuesday, from that point on, we know what a state is, right? It was a gradual, it was a gradual process. And, and so um, uh, we know that human history isn't a pretty thing and that it consists of tribes subjugating other tribes. You either subjugated or you got subjug or you got subjugated, you know? And so, uh, uh, there's, and, and that actually comes to, because I want to get to Ukraine after you asked me about Russia, but I want to get to what Ukraine is, you know? Well, that's after. where I, I was going. Important. Yeah. Right. Like, how do we distinguish? So, them? so, with with that as a backdrop about you know tribes versus states, uh, the today's Russians and today's Ukrainians and today's Belarusians have a common ancestor called the Rus people, which is where the word Russian actually you know comes from, right? And the Rus people all agree that they their origin is around Kiev or Kiev as it's called mm. in Ukrainian that that's the cradle of that sort of those make those mega tribes, those tribes that then grew culturally and, or, or archeologically, no, eth ethnically, ethnically, ethnically. Eth so there, in other okay. words, these are, these are Eastern Slavs, I guess is the name of the, you know, the ethnic group. And, uh, so this is before the Mongols that you talked about earlier. That's, that's right. That's right. Okay. So, you know, there's not, there's not like a date, uh, but I'll, but you know, so it, it dates to the, er, let's call it the early middle ages. Uh, and, and the, you know, common date that's used as, as maybe the birth of the, uh, Rus, uh, or, or, or is, is viewed as an important date in, in, in Rus history is 988 when their head, uh, Volodymyr, Vladimir, uh, baptized them into orthodoxy. Oh. And around that time, a little earlier, 966, I think it was, the Poles were baptized into Catholicism. And then from that point on, those people kind of diverged, if you see what I mean, right? Mm. So, uh, or, or they may already have started to diverge before then, but they certainly, it accelerated the divergence after that, and, uh, and they became distinct peoples. And then over time, because of, and, and, this, and this really is, is relevant to the history of Ukraine, so um, you know, U Ukraine is an area that is ironically Ukraina, which is which is what you know how you say Ukraine. It means borderland. Kray is a Slavic root that means the like the edge. So you could call Ukraine the edge, <laughs> and and so even the name itself mm. is because. If you look on a map, if you look on a map of Europe where Europe ends at the Ural Mountains, it's not at the edge of anything. 
It's in the middle. <laughs> but what it's at the edge of is it's at the edge of competing megapowers. That's why it's called the edge. So it's this, it's this tide pool, actually, where you had the Ottoman Empire trying to eat it up from the south. You know, you had uh, the, the uh, uh, now I'm fast forwarding now, the Russians have developed into a power. I'll come back to this, but the Russians have developed into a power. The Poles have developed into a power by uniting with Lithuania and becoming the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Prussians are a power. The, the Swedes are a power. The Austro-Hungarians later are a power. They're all taking a stab at owning Ukraine at various times. And when they did that, they'd move in, they'd be there for a few hundred years until the next upheaval when another power from, you know, Russia, let's say, comes in now and takes it over. And people from the previous tide stayed, you know, so you end up with this tide pool with a mix of people in it. Mm -hmm. You have Turkic speaking people in the south. How did that happen? Do the math. You have... German-speaking settlements in the West. How did that happen? I mentioned earlier with Austria-Hungary. You have massive Polish uh, settlements, cities like Lviv, which was a, a, today it's called Lviv, used to be called Lviv, was a Polish, largely Polish-speaking city. And that's, in the middle of... Go ahead. Sorry, that's where your mother's from, right? That's, that's right. She's from around yeah. there. That's yeah. right. The Western, uh, her dad was from that part of uh, Ukraine. Uh, you have, like I said, the Swedes took a stab at it. Uh, and, and, you know, as these tides moved in and receded and so on, you ended up having this, this patchwork of peoples. Now, there's an indigenous people. And by indigenous, I mean, they were there since time immemorial. And that's the Ukrainian Eastern Slavs who speak Ukrainian, you know, and, and it's a, a, a distinct uh, language as we as we talked about of course they didn't speak modern ukrainian back then they kind of all have a common root uh language right and and so that's that's what we're talking about when we're talking about ukraine i want to make another important point which is about the war of words you know we i know you and i have had this conversation about you know how things get referred to is a constant war of words is is it is it marriage equality or is it gay marriage? Is it right. anti-abortion or is it pro-life, right? There are these Freedom wars going on. or terrorist. Exactly. So, you know, there's these wars always going on. And, and so, <clears throat> you know, um, and, and history books that are being written. So I'm going to oversimplify a little bit here, but there aren't books in Poland of history of the Ukraine, Okay, there's books about Polish history where in the chapters it talks about those times when that was ours. There aren't books on history of Ukraine in Russia. There's books on history of Russia and there's parts of chapters that talk about when that was ours to make it even worse. And here's where I say war of words. The references historically in Polish books will, when they talk about Ukraine, they're not calling it Ukraine. They're calling it what it was called, which was Małopolska or Little Poland. <laughs> oh, fuck. Provincia Małopolska. Right. And if you're looking right. in a Russian history book, it's referring to that area as Malorosia or Little Russia, oh, or man. below it, an area that Catherine had populated. 
and to, to develop it called Novorossiya or New Russia. Mm. You see what I mean about the war right. of words? So all of this stuff is to negate the existence of it unto itself, right? And so, you've, and so yeah. go ahead. Good. No, finish your point. Yeah. So what I wanted to finish with is that's still true today. Okay. Yeah. So when we were little, okay, because it was part, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, right? The Russian Empire, if you will. Uh, we we referred to it, we referred to it as a translation from the Russian na Ukraine, which is the Ukraine. Do you remember when we were little, we called it the Ukraine? Uh, I still do sometimes. That's where the <laughs> the comes from. Yeah, it means okay. the borderland. Right, right. You see, and we aren't even think we're not even aware yeah. that we're buying into that. Right. Yeah. That's and, fascinating. And in and in whatever it was, 1991, I think it was, when they became independent, they said, the name of our country is Ukraine. And that's why we talk about Ukraine now. Right. Unless you're in Russia, where you still talk about now Ukraine. I, I mean, you know, not everybody. I don't mean to, to right. broad brush, but those those who have a certain agenda still call it now Ukraine or the Ukraine in the in the borderland. Interesting, right? Fascinating. Yeah. You, you've talked about some of the, the ethnic and linguistic and historical roots of the ambiguity around Ukrainian identity, uh, at least as seen from Poland and Russia and so on. Um, but another aspect of it, and, and we can this this refers to the article that uh, we talked about earlier that you mentioned earlier that was in yeah. the New York Times recently, an opinion piece by Brett Stevens saying you know, maybe Putin isn't fucking up. Maybe this is totally working out the way he wanted it to because there are incredible reserves of natural gas and oil in the eastern uh, regions of Ukraine. And actually his endgame might have been just to tie those up and make sure those are under Russian control and not under Western control. And as in so many of these wars that seem to be about identity and you know historical moment and good guys and bad guys it's often about what's under the ground um but also ukraine has a long history of this of being seen as a source of you know i, I read somewhere that like it's i don't remember the number but it's something like 70 percent of the black dirt arable very rich soil you beat me to in it. Europe. I was I was going to mention that. Yeah, right. And uh, you know, Napoleon. I read in a, a book years ago, and, and this tells you how weird my take on history is. It was a book about marijuana, and uh, <laughs> the the book made the point that the reason Napoleon invaded what then we were calling Russia, I guess, in the Napoleonic times, early eighteen hundreds. Um, was to take control of Ukraine because Ukraine supplied 80% of the world's cannabis. And the cannabis, yeah, hemp. hemp, right, uh, yeah. is was essential to a Navy because the sails yeah. were made from hemp yep. and the True. hemp was used to be, uh, stop up between the, the pieces of wood, the planks of wood, because hemp has natural oils that resist salt water better than anything else. And so if you don't have a constant supply of fresh hemp coming in, your eight, eight, uh, you know, your Navy uh, in the early 19th century is useless. It, it 
You know, it's like not having enough diesel for your tanks, like nice tank, but you can't drive it anywhere. Um, and so that's why, according to this book, uh, it was a book called The Emperor's Emperor Wears No Clothes, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's according to that author, Why Napoleon Invaded. You know, fascinating. So it's the breadbasket of Europe. It's incredibly rich in energy, we now know, and also in in how much, what percentage of the world's wheat comes out of Ukraine. It's huge. Yeah. Um, So there's that as well, right? It's a rich prize. Yeah, I don't, I I recommend that people read this opinion piece. Maybe you can attach the the link to it or something when you you post. It is an excellent uh, opinion piece. I, I don't agree with most of it, so I'll, I'll mm. break it down for you. Uh, first, I'll, first I'll, I'll very unfairly summarize, and you can poke holes in my summary of what the guy is saying. He's, he's saying whatever we're being fed here, you know, about what his motives are, uh, his real motive is energy dominance and uh, in, in, in the big picture, and that this, right. this allows him energy dominance and and. And also some important uh, secondary effects, which is access to the Black Sea, controlling the access to the Black to get those get another route for energy dominance. But that there's a lot of offshore gas and offshore oil, and where he's in where he's going, um, and that that's what's really going on here. And that you know he's he's hoodwinked everybody. So I don't I don't buy into that, and and there's a, a couple of reasons why. So the first one is that. The, the first one is just to say, I don't think the West was hoodwinked. I think there's a ballet playing out here, which began at least in 2014, if not well before 2014. I'm saying 2014 because that's when Crimea and uh, Donetsk and Luhansk happened, right? Uh, that the West is is well aware of and is party to, right? So, I, you know, yes, the Russians have a lot of very intelligent people, economists, strategists, military strategists, and so on. But so do we, you know, and we're not the idiots that we like to paint ourselves as being about not understanding other parts of the world, despite what our actions are sometimes, right? I mean, a guy like Anthony Blinken, you know, whose whose own ethnic roots come from that neighborhood, he's not an idiot. He knows the score about what's going on in in Ukraine and and so on. And I don't, I'm not just singling him out. I'm saying there's there's a lot of smart U.S. People. Secretary of State, right? So we know we know what's going on, and I think that we kind of pre choreographed our reaction to it. And and right. so that's and one he, that's one challenge that I have with him, which is that whole, he didn't hoodwink anybody. Was the whole sort of NATO expansion talk? Uh, a way of provoking him into this? The NATO expansionist talk took place over at least a couple of decades in multiple administrations that went left and then went right and so on. So it's hard for me to give an answer. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know what was going on, but as I, uh, uh, as you and I have talked about uh, recently, you know, if you're of Lithuanian background or Estonian background or Romanian background and what's the kind of misery that's been visited on you and your people by the Soviets over the last 60, 70, 100 years, uh, I don't blame them for wanting to be part of NATO, you know, sure. and, and if, if right. you put them in yourselves in their position. So it's not like, well, we'd like to, but we can't because we're going to make the Russians angry. And it's interesting that it sort of stopped at Ukraine, right? That ended up being the, the line. 
and we didn't. And it dragged on for 20 years until Russia got strong enough again, you know, that they, they felt they could do something about it and knew that we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't uh, do anything back. So that's my, that's my first uh, issue on it. My, my second kind of, you know, observation on the piece is that it's really more of an indictment of, I, I mentioned this earlier, of how, how nakedly propagandistic the Western press's coverage of the war uh, has been. They're just saying whatever, you know, Washington or London or, uh, you know, uh, Berlin wants them to paint about how inept the Russians are and how courageous the uh, Ukrainians are, which is it's not to say that's not true. But, you know, you, you see little little insights every now and then that it isn't exactly like what we're reading. Ukrainians are a divided people opinion-wise, just like anybody else. So there are a sure. lot. There are millions of Ukrainians who are generally pro-Moscow, generally pro-Russian, maybe even pro-Putin, pro-Russian language, you know, and so on. And I think that the other side of Ukrainians kind of don't want to don't want to hear that. They don't want to know that. That's just a fringe element. There's just a few of them. And the rush, the pro-Russian element of Ukrainians don't like to hear that there's a lot of Ukrainians who are of the other side. And they're like, oh, no, those are just Nazis. There's just a few nationalists, you know. But I want to make a distinction, which is that you might have millions of Rus- millions of Ukrainians who generally have a positive disposition toward Russia, Russian culture, things Russian. They maybe even do view themselves as we're brothers, the way the way uh, Putin likes to say it. That's not that's not the same as being for being invaded and having your apartment building raised to the ground and having people killed in front of you and, and, and having to flee to Poland. By the way, shout out to Poland. How cool is Poland? How cool is Poland? How cool is that country? There's two neighbors, right? How is one behaving? How's the other one behaving? Well, and also, given what you said about the way Ukraine is seen in Poland, you know, from the perspective of Polish history, as you in, know, in historically, us, historically, used to be yeah. little Poland. So there's a there's a camaraderie to it there, but there's also absolutely. Uh, um, no, I mean, basically, pol- polls have changed with the times, right? Polls have today's poll doesn't look at you know at, at Ukraine the same way. Unfortunately, Russians do still kind of look at Ukraine the same way. But but anyway, that was a, that was a tangent. I, I so that was that was a uh, another another uh, issue that I had uh, with it. And then the last thing was about energy dominance. I take issue with that because is the vector of fossil fuels going up or is it going down? Which which well, brings us back to Putin. Is he thinking 50, 100 years ahead, 200 years mm, ahead? Right. And and this is the conclusion that I, I wanted to say about this, is that to me, Putin, we're all products of our own generation. It's inescapable. Uh, each you, me, we have a frame of reference of somebody who grew up in the 60s and 70s, you know, and it shaped us in a particular way. Your listeners come from different generations. They have their own frames of reference. A lot of your listeners didn't grow up with the Soviet Union existing, right? They have a different frame of reference. Putin comes from a frame of reference. He's been very open about it over the years, which is the single biggest formative event of his life that's shaped who he is 
is the collapse of the Soviet Union. He's said it on countless occasions. I don't think he's thinking long term. I don't think he's thinking anything other than that was awful. I got to undo it. That's that's all I think he's doing. He's just a KGB thug who wants to bring back what was lost until he dies. Do you think he expected to be welcomed? Do you think that 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 aspect of the propaganda we're hearing is true? I, I don't, but I don't know. In other words, you, you got to figure he was getting good advice from people uh, on the ground there. You know, Russians and Ukrainians travel back and forth or used to travel back and forth a lot. I think he was getting good intel. So I, I don't think this, again, the Western press is painting this as, a, as, a, as, a, as an intel catastrophe for him, right? I don't, I don't think so. I think he knew that Joe Blow in, you know, Kharkiv, for example, which is a Russian-speaking city that's just been pummeled. Uh, draw a distinction between being culturally close and brotherly with the Russians and having tanks take down your building, you know, and kill people in front of you or your relatives, right? But, There's a but distinction then, between the two. Right. But then why, he, then he must have known that going in there and destroying that city was going to turn them against Russia. You know, as you've said, he's done more to unite Ukrainians yeah. than anyone else. So if he's getting good intelligence and he knows this is going to be a brutal invasion and prolonged occupation with resistance fighters, I don't see how that makes sense for him. I don't see how that's un, un, either the energy is so important that he's willing to, you know, put up with it or I don't know, maybe what you said about his his vision of returning to Soviet era glory is so dominant in his mind that he can't think beyond that but it doesn't he seems like a pretty good chess player like he's not thinking one or two moves ahead yeah i don't you know we don't know right so my speculation is that he figures of the group you know the substantial group of ukrainians who are generally pro-russian and a lot of them are have seats in parliament he'll cherry pick you know, them and put this guy as a mayor of this town and that guy as a, uh, you know, head of that uh, province and, and this guy in charge of the whole country and that ultimately the, the, the blood will cool, people's emotions will cool and, and that uh, there's enough of them to support uh, such a thing in the future. I, I, you know, and I'm totally, what is it? You, you have t-shirts that say talking out of my ass or something like that. Is that? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's a, uh... It's a regular feature on the podcast. Tomas. Yeah, okay. So, so that's, that was ass. a Toma. That was a as Toma. As well as ranting. Roma is our ranting out my ass. Okay. And, and I'm about to introduce bonus Romas, Bromas. <laughs> <laughs> got, got lots of subgenres. Yeah. I want to thank you for, for helping to clarify this, but I don't think it's clarifiable. So, uh, <laughs> But you certainly have given uh, me a bunch of uh, historical context that that I didn't have. Yeah, I was going to read you something quickly. Uh, we were talking about we were talking about uh, history. So we we all are reading about Mariupol, which is this city that is a port on the sea that is besieged and surrounded by Russian forces right now, right? And we're we're thinking about how terrible that is which it which it is right so i i looked up in on wikipedia so i'm i'm uh, 
right away saying this is Wikipedia. Uh, I looked up Mariupol. This is what it says about Mariupol when you click on history. From the 12th through the 16th century, so almost half a millennium, the area around Mariupol was largely devastated and depopulated by intense conflict between the Crimean Tatars, the uh, uh, Mongol horde, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Poland, and Muscovy. That's a hell of a quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 400 years of a, a 400 year long shitstorm took yeah. place here. Yeah. I, I heard someone say uh, a Ukrainian was talking about Odessa, and she said that Odessa is famous for their sense of humor, that it's like mm. the the comedy capital of Ukraine. Yeah, I've, I've heard that too. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be going politically incorrect here, but it's a, it's a Russian-speaking city that historically has always had a very high, uh, until you know, World War II, obviously, a very high Jewish population. That's where and, I was and, going with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not not just, you know, the whole link between Jews and comedy and cleverness and wordplay right. and all that, but but also tragedy and comedy, right? Which might yes. might be at a deeper yes. level, a deeper link. Uh, yes. That, uh, you know, when you have people who are constantly – Facing the worst conditions possible, humor sometimes is the only way out of it. I think yeah. you know that explains Irish humor as well to some extent. Uh, agree, agree. Yeah. Well, listen, brother, uh, it's been an hour. I, I maybe we can do another podcast sometime and talk about your uh, your recent experience. You just had a big health scare that must have sure. I mean, you're not. Maybe you want a little more perspective on it before you uh, start talking about it, but. Um, that's an intense thing. I mean, you were, you were, well, uh, which one of the reasons why we're talking right now is because I'm, I'm still on medical leave, right? You so got I've, some time I've got off. Some, yeah. I got some time on my hands. Um, yeah, yeah I had a, a, a pretty major thing, uh, happen to me that ultimately resulted in, uh, a, a pretty serious four hour surgery to save me. And then, uh, 31 days total in, in hospital, which, you know, from, waking up one morning with a pain in my groin, you know, and, and fine, feeling great up until that point. So yeah, you know, this is something I'm sure many people can relate to, but we're, we, we live our, uh, work a day, everyday lives in, you know, blissful ignorance of how fragile the whole thing is. Uh, and then all of a sudden one day, boom. So whether it's a car accident or whether it's, you know, whatever, uh, that can turn, on a dime and that's what that's what happened with me and it'll definitely get you thinking uh it'll get you thinking about stuff right so then in the middle yeah. of all of that putin invades ukraine yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i'm sure we could we can talk about that at some point and and uh i can yeah i'd like a little more uh time and distance between me and it first you know i can't tell you just one one comment on that is just to have so many people thinking about me, you know, praying for me, just whatever, just having all of that love around me. Uh, boy, that's, that's huge. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mike. And if you didn't blame it on me, it's not his fault. Um, 
as I said, he's very, uh, he's not a guy who's going to say he's an expert on, on any of this stuff. He's just uh, giving his opinion on things, uh, which, you know, in a situation as charged as a war is a very vulnerable thing to do. And uh, he's not a podcaster. He's not accustomed to talking into a microphone. Um, so uh, if you disagree with him, please be kind about it. Uh, as he would be if he disagreed with you. Uh, Chris Ryan dot substack dot com. Come and say hello. Sign up. At least sign up for free uh, if you want to get uh, emails and uh, hear from me occasionally. It'll it'll be at least three or four times a week at the beginning, uh, and then it'll taper off a little bit. I don't want to harass anybody, but uh, Substack's pretty cool, and I'm going to be uh, experimenting, exploring the different possibilities for um, shorter uh, podcasts that you just record right on the website, uh, videos that I will take traveling. As I said at the beginning, I'm on the island of Gran Canaria right now in the Canary Islands. Amazing spot, a uh, really beautiful island if you ever get a chance to come out here. I'm in the capital, Las Palmas, but I'm going to, I think, rent a car and travel around a little bit. So I'll probably make some videos in various places, at least uh, some photo essays. So those are all going to be on Substack. If you follow me on Instagram um, because you like that stuff, I'm going to be tapering that down. If you follow me on Twitter because you like to hear my inane thoughts, I'm going to be tapering that down as well. So Substack is the place to get all that stuff. Thank you, everybody. I know it's a busy world. I know there's a lot of stuff clamoring for your attention, so I'm very grateful for the attention you send to me. Hope you're all feeling good.